So welcome again to another STEM Tea Podcast, as we gather to discuss important topics related to STEM in academia. The title of today's podcast is Black Professionalism in STEM. This is a contentious topic that we hope to shed light on workplace and academia policies and underscore implicit biases of what are deemed acceptable facets of what professionalism should look like and how it's defined, especially for individuals who hail from culturally underrepresented backgrounds. In this podcast, we focus specifically on ethnic hair, traditional clothing, and cultural practices that appear in STEM spaces that have been deemed unprofessional in the workplace and academia. These perceptions of unprofessionalism creates barriers for underrepresented individuals who choose to retain their natural hair and cultural dress. Our discussion will highlight the importance of upholding traditional practices, which are important identity markers for underrepresented individuals. Retaining these identities is necessary to permeate acceptance and to enhance diverse perspectives in the workplace and in academia. Now settle in and let's start a deep dive into this critical conversation as you sit back and enjoy your tea of choice. My name is Dr. Elsie Spencer and I will be moderating this discussion. Here's a brief summary of my background. I'm an administrative director at Teachers College, Columbia University and a research fellow in Dr. Atentor Hinton's laboratory at Vanderbilt University. I'm a Cuban American and a native New Yorker, as well as a first generation college graduate. I received my doctorate in education from UPenn and my master's in public administration from Columbia University. My passion and expertise traverse higher education, specifically diversity and equity initiatives and promoting inclusion in academia. I'm also a powerful advocate for community initiatives and collaborations to improve the educational outcomes of underserved populations, specifically BIPOC faculty and students. I also sit on various subcommittees at Teachers College that promote DEI programming and gauge the effectiveness of current policies and strategies affecting BIPOCs and institutional culture overall. In this podcast, we are joined by our panelists and co-authors of Black Professionalism in STEM, Drs. Hayseta Schuler, Maria Namwanje, and Ms. Ella Ajay Sowa, who will share their perspectives as faculty and graduate students in higher education on this topic. Our first panelist is Dr. Schuler. Dr. Schuler is not only a student advocate, a diversity and equity and inclusion consultant, a STEM mentor, and IO psychologist, but she's also a certified Lean Six Sigma Greenbelt professional. Dr. Schuler has mentored more than 250 undergraduates, over 100 graduates and medical residents, and more than 750 middle and high school students in STEM education and DEI consulting. Currently, she serves as a member of the Winston-Salem Budget Committee, conducting studies and evaluating city services while implementing strategies to turn around underperforming departments. As a mentor, Dr. Schuler enjoys watching marginalized students blossom into successful STEM leaders. 
She produces long-lasting results with students, colleagues, and clients due to her skills. Over 20 DEI articles have been published by Dr. Schuler and her cohorts of junior STEM faculty and postdocs in the last two years. We also have with us Dr. Nanwen Jay. Dr. Nanwen Jay is a clinical genomic scientist at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. She has spent the last 10 years researching the genetics of obesity and has recently pivoted to clinical diagnostics of pediatric cancers. In addition to her research program, she's passionate about STEM educational outreach to promote diversity in academia and the industry. And last but not least, we have Emma Ajay-Soa, who is a third year PhD candidate at the University of Rochester Medical School. She obtained her bachelor's degree in Ghana, after which she moved to Arizona State University to complete an accelerated master's degree program in biomedical engineering as a MasterCard scholar. Her current research focuses on using peptide functionalized nanoparticles as a drug delivery system to improve musculoskeletal health in tissues like the tendon. So our first question will be directed to Dr. Schuler. Dr. Schuler, can you give us some contextual background on trichology, inculcation, and Black cultural identity? Sure, I'd be happy to give you the backstory. When the first slaves were brought to the Americas during the slave trade, Africans were known to assimilate to the European standards, including their dress, language, and diet. Consequently, they lost their cultural and tribal identities, including their natural hair. The slaves, remember, were forced to shave not only for hygiene issues related to the channel transportation quarters of the slave ships, but it was also a way to dehumanize them in society. Black people and those from the African diaspora are defined as people and communities that have migrated from Africa since the 15th century. They are more precisely defined as people that was transported during the transatlantic slave trade to the Americas. It was common for Black people to cover their natural hair with headscarves or turbans formerly known as the Tion. During the early 1700s, the Creole women in the state of Louisiana, they were forced to wear these head coverings because of the Tion law. This law stipulated that all women from the African diaspora had to cover their natural hair in public and denote them as Black women. But guess what the same slave owners who sanctioned this law, guess what they were doing? They were procreating with their slaves and children were born from these encounters and they were known as mulattoes. This is because they were mixed and their skin complexion was often lighter than the regular African and their hair texture was not similar to those with African roots. Let's define natural hair. It is hair that has not been texturally 
or chemically altered. This classification began its roots from laws such as the Tian rule and continues to exist in current policies. There is no doubt that hair relaxers and other follicle paraphernalia have played an important role in the history of the African-American hair. Moving forward to today, African-American hair continues to be diverse and dynamic. Many individuals choose to embrace their natural hair texture, while others may opt for a variety of protective styles, weaves, wigs, or chemical treatments. The natural hair movement has gained great momentum in the recent years, advocating for the acceptance and celebration of natural black hair in schools, workplaces, and society at large. Our social media platforms have played a significant role in fostering hair inspiration, sharing tips, and creating supportive communities. The history of African-American hair reflects the resilience, creativity, and cultural pride of a community that has faced significant challenges and discrimination. Through their hair practices, African-Americans have reclaimed their identity, changed and challenged beauty standards, and embraced their unique heritage, leaving an indelible mark on the cultural landscape of the United States. Thank you, Dr. Schuler, for all of that rich history on ethnic hair and how it played into American history. Now, Ella, this question is for you. Can you elaborate on race-based hair inequities and the ways it detrimentally affects people of color, especially Black women? Yes, sure. So it's documented that Black women are 1.5 times more likely to be recipients of hair discrimination. And they have either been disciplined or fired because they express their hair in its natural forms because they don't conform to HR policy. And this has spawned a legislative act to protect other Black women and other underrepresented minorities in the workplace called the Crown Act. This Crown Act is an acronym which stands for Create a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. This Crown Act, along with the Title VII Civil Rights Act of 1964, has motivated a number of organizations to reevaluate their policies to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. That's great, Ella. This topic is so critical to address, but it only touches the tip of the surface when it comes to systematic and institutionalized racism. Now, Dr. Namwanje, in your opinion, and maybe through your personal lens, why is it so important to look at hair and cultural attire in the workplace? Some may think it's a frivolous topic, but can you elaborate on the importance of this form of expression? This is a topic I can personally relate to. It took me a while to decide on wearing my natural hair or wearing a headscarf head at work. There is a need for change because Black culture archetypes exist as extensions of creativity, spirituality, and holistic healing in the African uh, diaspora, such as wearing kangas, bobos, and dashikis. Black culture is very distinct because it's heavily influenced and intersects both American and other global cultures. 
Natural hair and traditional clothing are very common within our society, yet at times they are countered with ideas of what should be deemed as professional, especially within STEM spaces. It has been proven that self-expression can enhance one's productivity and invites an inclusive and welcoming work and professional environment. The lack of sensitivity and awareness of these challenges that minorities contend with are the reasons why very many professionals with Black identity find uh, unwelcoming environments and barriers to their success within STEM. Thank you, Dr. Namwanje. And Ella, can you elaborate on the kinds of significance attached to these kinds of ethnic hairstyles that Dr. Namwanje just mentioned? Yes, definitely. So ethnic hair or natural hair is a critical component of tradition, community, beauty, and religion, and therefore forms a core part of a person's cultural identity. Ethnic hair can represent different attributes, including various stages of life, marriage, or mourning. For example, box braid patterns, which are very common these days, were previously used to distinguish tribal membership, age, wealth, marital status, social ranking, readiness to have daughters, high priesthood, and even religion. Another good example is that during slavery, Braid patterns were used to communicate by mapping escape routes in certain Caribbean islands. Furthermore, certain hairstyles are also associated with a person's religious beliefs. To some Rastafarians, for example, their dreadlocks signify their commitment to living a spiritual and natural lifestyle. So in summary, hairstyles can be used to represent deep-rooted cultural significance depending on the context within which it's being used and their respective history. That's great. So we are seeing some people and even organizations embracing traditional appearances such as ethnic hair and accepting this form of expression as a means of cultural identity and belonging. However, some organizations and HR departments are defining what are deemed to be quote unquote professional hairstyles. So Dr. Schuler, how can an HR administrator or an organization overall be inclusive and how should they define professional? Sure. There are steps that employers can undertake to avoid discrimination against Black hair and attire and create an environment where everyone feels like they're welcome and they have a sense of belonging. To continue to promote the topic of inclusion and respect for cultural and religious identities, we have the following recommendations for employers. First, we recommend that employers conduct a thorough review and revision of appearance and dress policies, such as dress code and grooming, to ensure that they include hairstyles associated with diverse ethnicities, genders, and religions. For example, policies that ban or restrict Specific hairstyles such as locks or cornrows should be banned and prohibited as they prevent inclusion efforts from existing within inside the organization. Also, employers who implement policies that prohibit hair length beyond a specific threshold 
or even mandate that their employees to alter their hair to comply with the organization's appearance norms, such as the requirement to straighten or relax hair that requires the use of chemicals or heat should be discouraged. And finally, employers should ensure that grooming and dress code regulations are consistently followed and respectful of diverse cultures. Oh, I absolutely agree. Now, Dr. Namunjay, this question is for you. When is it necessary to have policies in place that curtail how hair or cultural dress is worn on the job? Of course, there are different thresholds for different jobs or environments. Not all jobs or environments are the same because some require a certain level of safety and hygiene, such as wearing hairnets, hair ties, and helmets. Again, these measures should not be perceived as limiting one's cultural expression, but rather viewed as a policy that befits the type of job or environment where it's required to utilize safety measures. Wow, that's lots of great ideas discussed here. And we hope you all will walk away with ideas of why inclusion in all its forms is needed in STEM. Thanks again to our panelists for such a rich and thought-provoking conversation. It's been great having you all on today's podcast. And I hope that you, our listeners, have also enjoyed this conversation and that you have gained valuable insights from these experts. Please keep your eyes out for our paper to be published soon. There you will find more information on the Crown Act and suggestions for employers to create policies that are inclusive and celebratory of all cultures and traditions. But before we sign off, let's find out what teas our panelists have been drinking during this chat. So Dr. Schuler, what have you been drinking? Okay, we might be having some technical difficulties with Dr. Schuler. Ella, what type of tea have you been drinking? So I've been sipping on a cold glass of caramel macchiato just because it's hot, but also mostly to satisfy my cravings. Oh, that sounds delicious. And Dr. Namwanjay, what tea are you drinking? I'm drinking an ice cold green tea infused with pineapple. So just like everybody else, enduring the heat wave, this is really good to get, get you the little bit of sweetness and chill to keep you cool. That sounds yummy. And Dr. Schuler, now that we have you back, what tea are you uh, sipping right now? Yes, just like my other panelists, I have this tall glass of iced tea. It's a mixture of chai and green tea, and it's very cooling and soothing to my entire body from this extreme heat. I hear you. I too have been drinking an iced tea. It's an Earl Grey that I brewed the night before and I sort of keep out to let it cool and I just kind of sip on uh, throughout the day. It keeps me cool and it keeps me focused. And just tea in general has just kind of been the the uh, sort of beverage of choice, this heat and just all the work that we try to get through on an everyday basis. Uh, so again, thanks again to our panelists and for joining in our, our STEM Tea podcast. Um, everyone can find us on Twitter on our following handles. So Dr. Schuler can be found at 
PStrengthen. My Twitter handle is at Elsie La Cubana. Ella's Twitter is at E-A-S-A underscore M-E. And Dr. Namu J's is at M-N-A-M-W-A-N-J-E underscore PhD. Thanks again and stay well, my friends. <laughs>